Hello, Probable Causation listeners. I'm here today with my friend, David Isle. Hi, David. Hello. I am excited to be talking with you today for two reasons. One, you've officially joined the Probable Causation team. And two, we're going to talk about what you'll be up to. But before we tell them the details, let's give them some background on you. You used to be an economist. Tell us about that. Uh, I did. I'm guilty as charged on that one. <laughs> I studied at UCSD uh, and did some research in behavioral economics, which was kind of modish at the time that I was in grad school, possibly still is now. And then I was a faculty member at George Mason for a few years. We met uh, when I was just starting my gig at UVA. And so we've been friends for a good amount of time now. And then you left your cushy econ professor gig to become a law student at Columbia, which is where you are now. Is it everything you imagined? It's hard to remember exactly what I imagined <laughs> before it became reality, but I, I do find it engaging and fulfilling, partly just because I just like school. I think learning is really fun, and this is kind of um, the low-cost knowledge acquisition part of the program. I mean, uh, you could just open up a book that somebody tells you to read and just kind of um, pitch shovelfuls of knowledge into your brain. Um, it's kind of the opposite of research where learning anything is extremely high effort. So I think like if your goal is to just add to your personal store of knowledge, you definitely want to be you know, studying and reading and not doing research. So, uh, <laughs> but there's very little social value to just learning. Like just the fact that I have more knowledge than I did before is really mostly just consumption value for me. Um, at some point I'm going to, you know, want to use this knowledge to do something. Uh, and that's where like, I'll go downhill, but for now, <laughs> uh, I'm having a great time. <laughs> Um, it takes a special person to want more school after finishing a PhD. So um, yes, I think that says a lot about you. And you are interested specifically in criminal law. So tell the folks at home how you spent your summer. Over the summer, I was working at the Public Defender's Office in New Orleans, Louisiana, which is, uh, Louisiana is one of the highest uh, incarceration states in the United States. It's usually, uh, I think, neck and neck up there with Oklahoma. Um, but, uh, as a law student, not a lawyer yet, you know, I'm not representing people, but mostly I was visiting clients. Most of them are being detained pretrial. So a lot of those visits took place in jail, um, and helping investigate the case, usually watching a lot of body cam footage from the police, things like that. And finally, you read a zillion books per year, including many related to criminal justice policy. I don't know how you read so much, but you do. Uh, and you also write amazing and thoughtful reviews in Twitter thread form, the way all the best writing is done these days, I think. So people should check those out if they haven't already seen them. You are at Economistified on Twitter. So for all of these reasons, your econ and law backgrounds, plus your voracious reading habits, you are the perfect person to interview book authors for probable causation. Economists don't usually write books. We are journal article folk. So these books are mostly by legal scholars and perhaps other social scientists down the road. And, you know, these are 
obviously smart, thoughtful people with interesting things to say about criminal justice policy, but who often approach these issues from a different perspective than economists do. And so we thought it would be fun to expose the probable causation audience to these ideas, but have someone with an econ background asking the questions that they themselves might have in mind as they listen. So you're perfect for this, because as much as you might try to fight it, you're still an economist at heart. Well, I I think that probably, I think that can't be true, because as every lawyer knows, economists do not have hearts. (laughs) So no one could be an economist at heart, most of all me. Um, but, uh, I do feel that a lot of the time in my legal education, um, I'm kind of the, the neighborhood economist or whatever. Uh, I think a lot of the time I'm urging lawyers to use less economics because, uh, the, well, I, I I think often they think they know more about it than they actually do. And sometimes the kind of form of economics employed is this kind of like libertarian sorcery form of economics <laughs> uh, with both by its supporters and detractors. So, um, I mean, it's often the kind of homo economicus is a straw man who's this uh, selfish and uh, usually wealth maximizing person. And, Economics is a lot richer than that. So I'm usually not – I'll take it back a little bit. I don't always say that uh, I am telling them to use less economics or think about economics less, but I'm often encouraging them to think about economics as being broader than what they think of it as. So that's somewhat similar to, in some ways to the role that I played before as a behavioral economist where I was thinking economists – encouraging economists to think more broadly sometimes too. But um, – I think that you know mainstream economists uh, are also have a much richer view of the world than the caricature that lawyers sometimes assign to them. Um, so I do, uh, in that way, I'm kind of a defender of the true faith. But I, <laughs> I doubt that many of these conversations that I'll have will feel too much like economist verse versus lawyer historian or whatever um I, th- I think a lot of lawyers also you know have a pretty rich understanding of economics and so for instance in my property class you know we read ronald Coase's original paper which i don't think i ever did in my phd program I th- you know we learned the Coase mm-hmm. theorem and everything i don't remember reading the original paper but i did from my property class that is very interesting so, yes, you're going to be interviewing book authors. Do you have particular goals in mind as you go into these conversations? What are you hoping that listeners will get out of them? So my my goal is to talk to people whose work I'm interested in and um, you know people whose book I just couldn't get enough of and want epilogue after epilogue of. So that's my selfish goal, to just free ride off of their hard work and producing <laughs> this knowledge. And uh, appropriate of it, as much of it as I possibly can, um, but it'll have a benefit, I hope, for for listeners who are interested in the same sorts of things. And um, of course, your podcasts do that as well. And uh, what I hope to add with my interviews, interviewing uh, probably a lot of legal academics, but also you know some other non-economists as well, um, is to give 
the social scientists members of the audience some awareness of um, uh, some legal issues they might not otherwise think of. So in particular, you know, local variations and rules, particularly in criminal justice, there's just a tremendous amount of variability across the country and also the way that practices might deviate from rules. So um, you may not realize this if you just, you know, look up in the law book or even the case law, what it the courts say that they're doing, but often they're not doing those things. So um, <laughs> if you're investigating, you know, the effects of some policy or something, uh, I want to alert people that, that this may be an issue that you should care about. Um, and also to kind of call back to something I said before, to, to make economists aware that lawyers are not all, um, you know, number phobes. A, a lot of them do care a lot about empirical evidence or comfortable talking about it and um, care about and are able to assess quality of evidence too. So uh, there's something called a Brandeis brief, which is uh, was kind of innovated by the Supreme Court Justice Louis Brandeis in a case that litigated the constitutionality of uh, a state law that limited the number of hours that women could work in a week. This is more than a century ago now. Um, but a Brandeis brief is is kind of a a brief filled with um, social science and empirical evidence that supports some legal argument, and those are um, you know not tremendously uncommon. So it is something that lawyers do and you know use um, social science. So um, I hope that it'll be instructive for the listeners who are mostly used to talking to economists to hear smart lawyers talking about evidence. Is there anything you think it would be helpful for economists like myself to keep in mind as we listen to these interviews? Anything that has helped you make the transition from econ to law in terms of how people think about these issues? So the first rule of studying law and practicing law, I think, is for me, is that absolutely nobody knows what the law is. So <laughs> it's helpful <laughs> to approach it um, with a view that you know, there, um, there are kinds of arguments that are good to make and there are kinds of arguments that you know courts are just never going to credit. Uh, but there's a lot of ambiguity about what the law is. So uh, I thought, and probably you know, most citizens might think, that you know, when you study the law, you just kind of go to the law book and you memorize the rules and then um, you know, on a test, you spit back the rules and then you're a liar. It's not really like that so much. <laughs> so um, just be, be aware that uh, there's a fair amount of ambiguity about uh, you know, what the law is. Um, and then another thing that I, I think is useful to keep in mind is that not only is there a lot of ambiguity about what the law is, but there's a lot of variation across um lawyers, legal academics, and people who practice law, and even just how to think about the law. So how to interpret text, how to, like, what kind of arguments are best. So uh, I think that uh, economists, without even really realizing it, are um, really committed to a consequentialist worldview. In other words, you know, in, in analyzing policies, and comparing them, you know, we think about their effects, so the you know, repercussions they have for material outcomes. And uh, that's certainly a, a valid way to 
uh, think about policies. But there's there are also a lot of other kinds of arguments that you can make about policies that uh, or laws that the lawyers make all the time. So, um, and I think economists mostly have these kinds of views too. They just don't uh, really think about economic issues uh, in those terms very often. So you might. So an example, um, you know, freedom of speech. It's uh, is something that you could think about in kind of cost benefit terms. And Cass Sunstein has a recent article that tries to do exactly that. But it's also kind of almost antithetical to the nature of this right to think about it in terms of cost benefit. Like it's a different sort of right and it's something that we don't want to decide on that basis. So in the law, you encounter arguments like that a lot. And often you have to kind of compare them to cost benefit type, you know, consequentialist arguments. And they don't compare well. So uh, by that, I mean that they come up short in comparison to consequentialist arguments. I don't mean that. I mean that it's just very difficult to compare them because they're just in such different spheres. And in thinking about the law, a lot of the time you end up having to make those kinds of comparisons that seem um, just almost silly to make. But the issue that is in front of you might implicate, you know, both those kinds of arguments and there's no way to get around comparing them. Um, and then also, even when the, the a court is considering a question that bears heavily on purely consequentialist issues, often they just have to decide it without very much good empirical evidence about what are going to be the repercussions of deciding one way or the other. So, if you're an academic, you know, you might look at that kind of issue and think like, oh, okay, well, now is a good time to try and go out and get really good evidence on this question. And, um, you know, then I can inform policymakers later on. But for a court, usually they, they don't have that kind of time and they also don't have resources. They don't employ economists and other social scientists to ask those questions of. Sometimes the parties might try to, to um, provide that kind of evidence to the court, but that's not really their function. So um, they often have to kind of guess at these things and, you know, go by their intuition, which, you know, sometimes is pretty good and sometimes is not that good. And other times um, you will never find out because the empirical claims they're making are, are very difficult to assess. So I think those are, are some ways in which, you know, analysis of the law differs from you know, ways in which economists are usually thinking about things. But at the same time, I, I want to emphasize that there's a lot of overlap. And um, in the course of you know, a first-year law sequence, there's a ton of economics in there. So any lawyer you talk to is probably going to be at least conversant in a lot of the things that economists think about. I mean, they think about comparative advantage all the time and you know, a bunch of different uh, areas of law. So the two realms have a lot of overlap. Okay. So a final and very important point, these will be bonus episodes, which means you'll need to be a Patreon subscriber in order to access them. You can sign up for just $5 per month at patreon.com slash probable causation. All of probable causation is listener supported. So your contributions there help support the whole show these bonus episodes are just one way we are thanking you, dear listeners, for your support. And thank you, David, for launching this new endeavor. I am very much looking forward to hearing your episodes. 
Thank you. I'm looking forward to doing them.